Let me do some front work on Exodus 19. Um, Exodus 19, the whole chapter is going to revolve around the revelation of God at Mount Sinai. This is a, this is a big text, okay? This is a big deal. And if you take the revelation of God seriously this morning, it will blow your mind. It will expand your conscience. It will challenge your theology. It will comfort you, terrify you, deepen you, embolden you, surprise you, and shock you if you take Mount Sinai seriously this morning. If you take it seriously, it's dangerous, it's strange, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's subversive, it's gorgeous, it's stunning, it's terrifying, and it is particularly vivid. And what you need to know before we even look at the text is that every grammatical decision in chapter 19, every description in chapter 19, and every sentence in chapter 19 is designed and intended to convince you that God is the true king of the world. That's what chapter 19 is about. So what we're going to do today is we're, we're, um, we're going we're to try and catch lightning in a bottle. This is a very big moment in the history of God's people. So we're going to try and catch lightning in a bottle. We're going to try and freeze this moment at Mount Sinai, and we're going to try and look at it from the perspective of three different ancient Israelites I mean, wouldn't you love to have been here? Like, don't you want to know what they were thinking? So as we look at the perspectives of three different ancient Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, we're going to be asking questions like, what in the world would they have been thinking? Oh my gosh, what would they have been feeling? What would they have been believing? What were they smelling? What would it have been like to be there? All three of these perspectives are complementary. They all come together and form a coherent and gigantic vision of God as king. What would it have been like to be there? Let's stand for the reading of the word of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so about three months later, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell all the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, we're in. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. 
and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care. Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people again lest they break through to the Lord and to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, you can have a seat. When I was little, I was, I was obsessed with Godzilla. Some of you know what that is. Some of you don't know what that, that is. Godzilla literally means king of the lizards and king of the monsters. He was this kind of like mutant lizard that turned into like this dinosaur monster who was the king of the monsters. And I was, I was obsessed with Godzilla. I had the t-shirts, man. I had a poster of Godzilla in my room. I had all of these toy figurine Godzillas that I loved to play with growing up. I was Godzilla's number one fan, number one fan. And so naturally, when 1998 came around and the new Godzilla movie came out, my parents took me to it in theaters, and I got to bring along a few of my friends when I was 10 years old. Little did I know that would be my downfall socially. We're at the movie. Everything is going well. We're like 30 minutes into the movie, and all of a sudden, on this gigantic screen is the revelation of Godzilla in all his glory on the gigantic screen with the surround sound. And my friends were cheering, my friends were clapping, and I was freaking out, man. <laughs> Biggest fan in the world, but I just started to freak out. Like, eyes wide open freaking out. Like, hands literally shaking and trembling freaking out and the worst the worst part of all of it the worst part of all of it was that my mother in front of my friends at 10 years old had to take me outside of the movie theater and give me a brown paper bag to blow into and suck into i godzilla's biggest fan had hyperventilated in the movie theater at the revelation of godzilla loved him from afar 
terrified of them up close. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Is this you? Like you love God from a distance, but up close he just terrifies you? You know, like you, you love God, you have posters of God, you, you get it, right? You, have, you love God as little figurines that you can kind of play with. You kind of play the religious game. You, you pray sometimes, but it freaks you out, man, the thought of God actually searching your heart and for you to develop an intimate relationship with God. You know, you, you love God from a, from a distance. And maybe like, it, maybe like you'll, you'll think about God once in a while, but like it freaks you out to commit to a church and to actually go deep with other relationships because of what you might learn about God. You kind of like God as an abstract concept. I believe that God exists, but the idea of God revealing himself in a concrete person named Jesus Christ absolutely freaks you out. Is this you? When we look at Exodus 19, that's definitely the Israelites. They like Yahweh when Moses is talking to them. They like Yahweh when he's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke and way out in front of them. But at the revelation of Mount Sinai, they are trembling and they should. In fact, the imagery here is amazing in Exodus 19. The Israelites, they, they, they set up camp at Mount Sinai, and at the foot of the mountain, they look up at this awesome revelation of Yahweh. Thunder pours out of the sky's ears with a boom that would have rattled in the marrow, like the very marrow of their bones. Lightning covers the sky with brilliant explosions of incandescent yellow and glowing fiery orange. And God descends on the mountain in fire and to conceal himself, thick black smoke erupts out of the porouses of the mountain and engulfs and wraps the mountain in a visual suspension of black carbon and as though that weren't enough an ominous trumpet in the background victoriously blows this is crazy the earth itself gets it the earth itself shivers what is going on in this revelation of God well, let's think about our first Israelite perspective. Israelite number one, while he was at the foot of Mount Sinai looking at this revelation of God, what he sees is he actually sees an opportunity to belong in God's kingdom. In fact, Exodus 19.6 refers to the Israelites as a kingdom of priests. This is actually the first time in the entire Bible where God's people are ever referred to as a, as a kingdom. And Israelite number one, he would have made a mental note of this pretty easily, especially as he kind of took note of Moses' conversation with God. Isn't that funny? Did you notice that? Moses' conversation with God, he goes up, he goes down, he has this whole conversation with God. And as Israelite number one watched this unfold in front of them, what he would have noticed, and I can't stress this enough, is that Yahweh and Moses, as they talk to each other, they, they ain't text messaging each other. This is not texting, you know? This is not like a, a Snapchat back and forth pictures. This is not a casual conversation between Yahweh and Moses. In fact, Israelite number one would have picked up on this immediately. This conversation between God and Moses follows almost exactly the pattern and procedure of ancient treaties between a new king and the nation that a new king just conquered. It follows a pattern. It's actually a formal conversation that's happening here. These ancient treaties, they always begin with a 
preamble that the king would write after conquering a nation. The preamble, it usually included a history of the two nations, how they got into a fight with each other, their conflict, how it ended, and what their battle was like. That's exactly what chapter 19, verse 3 is. It's a preamble. 19.3 says, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell all the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Israelite number one would have heard this and thought, hold on, that sounds a lot like an ancient treaty. That sounds a lot like a, pre- like a preamble. Hold on a second, is, is God going to be our... Let's keep talking. The second component of an ancient Israelite, or sorry, an ancient treaty, was to set the terms after the prologue. The purpose of this was to obviously set the expectations for what the nation's future relationship is going to look like with the king, how they would contribute to the king's nation, what exactly their obligation was in providing citizens to the king's courts and the king's armies, and so on and so on and so on. And this conversation between Moses and Yahweh continues to follow this exact same pattern. In verse 5, God lays this out. He says, now therefore, here are the terms. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This would be the completion of Israelite number one's light bulb moment. It would have flashed in his mind and he would have said, oh, I get it. This is a treaty. I get it. God is going to be our king. He would have bubbled with excitement. He he, he would have thought, oh my gosh, God is enlisting us. He's enlisting us to be part of his new kingdom project on earth. We get to worship this king. We get to obey this king. We get to love this king. We get to join a kingdom of people who are going to march to the beat of a different drummer, who are going to keep in step with a different king. How exciting is this? This is amazing. We're part of a kingdom now. But let's shift perspectives, okay? This is part of what you're seeing at Mount Sinai. We need a second Israelite's perspective. Israelite number two. He, when he looks up at Mount Sinai, sees a God who is totally above them, totally transcendent, totally untouchable, totally holy. And as the Mount Sinai scene unfolds before him, he's like, he's, you have to realize that he's in the middle of a very, very high-pressure social system right now. You've got lightning. You've got thunder. You've got the earth quaking. He's, he's surrounded by thousands of Israelites. Some Israelites to his right are going, oh my gosh, God is going to be our king. This is amazing. This is awesome. Some Israelites to his left are saying, and we get to be part of his kingdom. God's going to involve us in his work in the world. We get to be part of the kingdom of God. And in the middle of all this noise, and in the middle of all this bright, shining lightning, Israelite number two would have just dropped to his knees, 
trembled with fear, doubled over, completely overwhelmed by the glory and the holiness of God. He would be like a child in front of a big screen theater, hyperventilating at the big screen in the huge noises of his hero that he's been worshiping for three months right now. This will knock you on your butt if you think critically about it, if you visualize it, man. All of these details. I mean, what were the thunder and lightning, the blunder of dark clouds rising, and the fire that conspired with the trumpet horn while the earth was rocked and torn? What were they all trying to say? What was the earth trying to display? I mean, you got so many of these elements going around. You got the dark cloud. What's up with the dark cloud? The dark cloud is is a sign of the king's mystery imprinting on us God's story, his desire that he should have glory that no eye should see, not even Moses, you or me. And what's up with the fire? What's going on with the little campfire? Not a campfire. What's going on with this big fire that God descends on? And the fire, a sign that the king is holy, so holy, holy, holy that lowly creatures like us can't draw near unless our sin is cleared and our joy mixed with fear. And the trumpet, what is going on with that trumpet? A symbol of his sovereignty, audibly declaring that God is free to reign over mountains and shoestrings, to rule over everything and anything because he is king. Here's the point. This is where all of this is going in chapter 19. The thunder, the lightning, the trumpet, the cloud, and even the earth all conspired and unfurled. Why? Because God is king of the world. Is this your God? This is incredible. If we don't have this perspective of God on Mount Sinai, we will take him lightly. He will be inconsequential in our life. He'll be secondary at most, tertiary at least. And what we'll do when we imagine God is we'll just project one of our peers into this guy. You need this perspective of God as your king. And yet, we need to shift perspectives again. We need Israelite number three's perspective. What is Israelite number three seeing at the foot of this mountain? Israelite number three would have seen, yes, a God who was up there. Yes, a God who was out there. But Israelite number three also would have seen a God who is with them. And the reason why she saw a God who was with them is because Israelite number three, she is bright and she is smart and she has done her homework on other ancient religions. She knows that the nations neighboring Egypt had a supernatural understanding of mountains like Mount Sinai. And so she knew that almost every other ancient religion believed that their gods lived on the top of mountains. So she would interpret the Mount Sinai event as a demonstration of Yahweh's superiority over all the other gods. She would have looked at God descending on Mount Sinai and said, oh, your God lives on top of a mountain that's cute my God has to descend to get down on his level oh your God lives on top of a mountain how precious my God stoops to get on his level and yet as she saw heaven and earth mix on top of Mount Sinai she would have seen a God who is remarkably near to us and she would have felt a nearness to God and a closeness to God and an intimacy with God partly because of Moses's leadership you saw this in the text right Moses's leadership 
Moses has helped Israelite number three prepare for God's descent on Mount Sinai. He's instructed her and taught her about how to prepare for the coming king. And the text says that he taught her how to wash her clothes, to abstain from sex for a few days. And it even says that Moses consecrated her in the rest of Israel, which means that it just means that he made he did something. Maybe he did a sacrifice. Maybe he baptized them or something like that. But he did something to make them holy and acceptable in the presence of God. Well, let, let me... Let me adjust that statement. He did something to make them holy and acceptable in the presence of God, kind of. They're, they're kind of in the presence of God, right? Israelite number three, she still has to stand on the foot of the mountain. But you know, you know that she desires to get closer to God. You know that she desires to get closer to God. And the reason you know this is because God literally has to repeat himself three different times in this text and say, hey, don't come, near, don't come up the mountain. That won't go well for you. Don't go up the mountain. In fact, Moses literally has to set boundaries for the Israelites around the foot of the mountain. Moses has to, let me, let me phrase it this way. Moses has to break out the police tape and he's got to mark off the foot of the mountain with yellow tape that says, do not trespass, do not cross, do not enter, authorize access only. And the reason why he had to mark off the boundaries at the foot of Mount Sinai is because of people like Israelite number three, man. She sees this grand vision of God, and she wants to run up the mountain. She wants to sprint up the mountain. She wants to find her king. She wants to bow her knee to her king. She wants to embrace her king, but she can't. He's too holy. She's too sinful. It means death for her. Now, let me also add a little tension to the story. The sharpest point of this text is not merely that Israelite number three wants to be closer to God but can't. It's also that God wants to be closer to Israelite number three but can't. The text says, I mean, it says, it says that she is God's treasured possession. He loves her. He rejoices over her. He delights in her. He has affection for her. He treasures her. In fact, if you've ever studied Shakespeare, there's kind of a Capulet Montague thing happening right here. Romeo, Juliet, they desire one another, but they don't mix. They can't mix. And there's this explosive tension that's coming out of that. God wants to be near, but he's too holy. She wants to be near, but she's too sinful. In fact, the, I mean, this is the entire conflict of your entire Bible. How will a holy king be with his sinful and imperfective, just imperfect kingdom? How do you solve this tension? And this tension, it does permeate the whole Bible. I'm, I'm going to get ahead of Exodus 19 by like a mile. I'm going to run out in front of Exodus 19. But after this incredible inauguration scene of God as king, Israel is eventually going to get bored of God. They're going to look at their, their neighboring and, and rival nations, and they're going to get jealous, and they're going to say, man, our God is so far out there, and he's so abstract, and all of these neighboring nations, they get to have a human being as king. Can't we have a human being as king, God? Can't we? And God actually ends up conceding to them. He gives them a human king, and this leads them into just a vicious cycle of hopeful optimism and crushing failure, a new king inaugurated hope. 
then a crushing failure, despair. It's just this whole cycle of every human king failing Israel in this desire for God to be king. And a human being to be king creates a huge problem in the Bible. It's it's the ancient version of what happens when an unstoppable car hits an immovable wall. What happens when people want God as their king but want man as their king. And this is really, really tense. In fact, one of the most tense parts of the Bible is Ezekiel 34. Step into this tension. This is Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, rulers, kings, leaders, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourself, should not the, sh- should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Man, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you haven't healed, the injured you haven't bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. What's the problem? All human kings are failing. Look at God's solution. This is also Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll get the job done. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. But look at where he goes in the next passage of Ezekiel 34. Biblical critics and scholars just tear this into pieces. God goes on to say, And I will set up over them one shepherd. Okay, I got it. Yeah, it's going to be you, God. You're the one shepherd. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, who's already deceased at the time Ezekiel is writing this. He's talking about somebody in the line of David. And he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Well, hold on a second. Like I said, biblical critics tear this passage apart because there is a huge contradiction in it. What's the contradiction in it? Well, is God going to be the king of his people? Or is somebody in the line of David going to be the king of his people? Do you feel the tension? Are we going to get god as our king or are we going to get a human being as our king and church i just love jesus because hundreds of years later this man from nazareth just waltzes into the middle of this tension and he fulfills both desires in one person in jesus christ fully god fully man all of israel's wildest dreams come true they get god as king and they get man as king all in one person wow Wow, Jesus perfectly fulfills this. And also, this is amazing, but do you also see how you would have totally overlooked Jesus too in the first century? Sometimes you read Jesus in the Gospels and you're like, man, how could they have rejected him and despised him and crucified him? I don't really get it. Well, if you had lived in the first century, guys, you would have grown up listening to the Mount Sinai story on repeat. You would have sung songs about this. You would have prayed prayers about this. You would have heard teachings about this. You would have heard debates about this. And, the, and, and, and this vision of Mount Sinai would have been so deeply ingrained into your heart and into your imagination that whenever you thought about God coming back to the 
earth as king, you would picture thunder and lightning and trumpets. You would picture all of this. So do you see how when a first century Jewish man named Jesus from Nazareth rode into town on a donkey, you see how you would have laughed at him too? You see how when they mocked him and captured him and threw a purple robe on him, jammed a crown of thorns onto his head, pushed him up onto a cross, put king of the Jews above him. Do you see how you would have actually probably would have found that funny too? See how you would have giggled at Jesus too? Oh, this is our king. Where's the thunder? Where's the lightning? He's going to ride in on a donkey. Do you see how you also would have crucified your king? And by the way, what kind of king is crucified for his kingdom? The only king, that's who. I mean, do you really want somebody ruling your life who wouldn't die for your life? Do you really want a king? Do you really want somebody ruling the earth that wouldn't die for the earth? I mean, this world is jacked up, man. It hurts. It's broken. People are hostile. People are abusive. To walk through this earth is to feel pain. It is to feel earth. In an earth like us, the only acceptable throne is a cross. I don't trust anybody to rule my life that wouldn't die for it. I don't trust somebody to be the king of my life that doesn't know my pain, doesn't know my problems. And I'm telling you, if you want a king, don't look anywhere else besides the cross. That means you've got to dethrone some people this morning. For instance, when you look for your king, don't look to a politician. Now, I'm not saying don't develop uh, political opinions and don't pick a political party and don't be thoughtfully engaged in political conversations. Do that. Have a blast. I'm so glad that you're a Republican. I'm so glad that you're a Democrat. Go get him. What I'm saying is your king won't be elected in the next cycle. He was elected before the foundation of the world. What I'm saying is your king won't have a four-year term or an eight-year term. What I'm saying is that your king, his kingdom is forever and ever. What I'm saying is your king is not going to rule over 50 states. Your king is going to rule over the cosmos. What I'm saying is your king is not going to wear a red tie. Your king is not going to wear a blue tie. Your king bled red and he was beaten blue. That's why he's your king. That's right. I mean, I think it's cool that you're into politics. Just don't let it be your kingdom, man. And for God's sake, when you look for your king, don't look in the mirror. You make, if you're like me, you just make a tyrant of a king over yourself. You are way more harsh. You are way more abusive. You are way more hostile. You are way harder on yourself than Pharaoh ever was on Egypt. I'm not saying that you would actually say, yeah, Cole, I think I'm the king of my life. I'm saying that deep down you feel that way, you know? You'd never let those words come out of your mouth, but don't, I do this. Don't you constantly manipulate and control the environment around you so that people always see you in their best light? You know, like, no, you can't summon thunder and lightning, but you'll try to fabricate it if you can't. And don't you too, I mean, I do all of this stuff, guys. I'm not just ragging on you guys, but don't you also develop your own laws and your own rules and your own opinions and then secretly demand that others around you conform to them? And don't you also build your own definitions of success, your own vision of flourishing that maybe looks nothing like God's kingdom? Don't you do all of these things? 
And if we're honest, the reason why we do all these things is if we sit down and honestly think critically about Mount Sinai and honestly envision Sinai, if we are honest, we see ourselves at the top of the mountain. We see ourselves as enthroned. And this morning is an invitation to dethrone yourself as king. This morning is an invitation to say yes, say yes to God's kingdom, to say yes to God as your king, to say yes to participating in Jesus' kingdom. I mean, the gospel is so beautiful. This announcement that Jesus is king is so beautiful because the gospel is the story of the king of the world descending from heaven to the top of the mountain and then descending from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain and descending from the bottom of the mountain to the cross. And this is why when the New Testament looks back at Mount Sinai, it doesn't fit with perspective one. It doesn't fit with perspective two. It doesn't fit with perspective three. It provides a jarring, surprising fourth perspective. Listen to Hebrews in the New Testament talk about Mount Sinai. He says, for you, when you come to God, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The author says, you haven't come to God like that. Christ has been crucified for you. And so you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels partying in a festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. Do you get it? Do you get it? When you look back at Exodus 19, at Mount Sinai, man, The world wasn't ready to see God. Sin had not been dealt with permanently and decisively. So God had every right in the world to set boundaries around himself. God had every right in the world to conceal himself in thick black smoke. But if you're a Christian, this mountain is no longer untouchable. If you're a Christian, you can meditate on Mount Sinai. You can picture it in all of its terror. You can picture it in all of its glory. But I just need to say this. Earlier this week, I met with a... I met with a a collection of pastors in our network, and I spent substantial time having a conversation with one of the pastors, and he was walking me through how he still sees God as angry, distant, and mad at him. And as we continue to talk, he... He shared with me what I hear so many of us share with one another, which is all of this bad theology about being scared of God ultimately resolved, like it ultimately resulted from having a dad who scared the daylights out of him. And so he's been so encouraged by this conversation because he's been seeing a counselor and his counselor has been walking him through his childhood and looking at all these peak moments in his childhood that were really formative to developing this fear in him. And he pinpointed one particular moment in his life where a lot of this has bled from. He was nine years old. I mean, nine years old. And he's playing chess with his dad. He's never beaten his dad at chess. And it's becoming clearer and clearer as the game goes along that he's going to win. He's going to win at chess. 
This kid's nine, man. You can imagine the pride that he's getting filled with, the excitement that he's getting filled with. He's finally going to beat his dad at this. And when the victory looked apparent, nine-year-old kid, his dad takes the chessboard and flips it over. Chess pieces fly everywhere. Chess pieces hit the ceiling. Now, some of you are still there with God. You're still scared of him. Scares the living daylights out of you. And this pastor went on, this, this was so cool. He went on to share with me how the most healing thing in this past season of life has been meditating on that moment, not avoiding it, but meditating on that moment and witnessing Christ with a redemptive framework, stepping into that situation, praying about it, meditating on it, thinking about it, dwelling on it, and by faith, seeing Jesus Christ step into that living room when he was nine years old. And he said, Cole, do you wanna know what I see Jesus doing when I see him enter that room? I see Jesus getting down on his hands and knees and picking up the chess pieces. Wow. And so as you meditate on Mount Sinai, this, this all week, man, as you meditate on Mount Sinai, picture all the details. But you need to meditate on Mount Sinai until it becomes Mount Zion. You need to. Visualize the black smoke that wrapped around the mountain, but you need to meditate on it until God peels back the black smoke. And when he peels back the black smoke, do you want to know who's waiting there for you? Jesus. And do you want to know what Jesus is saying to you on the mountain? He's, he's waving at you. He's gesturing at you. And he's saying, draw near. Draw near. Draw near to your king. Don't stay at the foot of the mountain, guys. Draw near to your king. He wants you to draw near to him. You can jump over the police tape. You can burst through the police tape. Sprint, run, run, run. Embrace Jesus as your king. If you never have, bow your knee to King Jesus this morning. He is the best king in the entire world. And this is a fundamental difference between religion and the gospel. You have to get this. Religion is always half right. Religion looks at this and religion says... God is so holy, and I have no right to draw near him. And the gospel says, God is so holy, and I have no right to draw near him, and Jesus gives me the right to draw near him. That's the gospel. Religion is, man, God can beat me up. I better stay away from him. The gospel is, God can beat me up, but he has chosen to love me. He has chosen to make me his treasured possession. And the, the reason why you can draw near to God is not because God's character changed. God's nature didn't change. There will still be lightning and thunder at the revelation of him. God's nature didn't change. The earth still gets it. The earth is still going to quake and tremble before him. The reason why you can draw near to God is not because God's nature changed. It's because your nature changed. If you're a Christian, God has literally given you a new nature, you know? He's literally made you into a new creation. He has, the New Testament says, transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. <laughs> but we're so far away from Exodus 19 right now. So let's come back to the story. 
come back to Exodus 19 because at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Israelites were witnessing something amazing. God was becoming king of the world and he was establishing Israel as his kingdom on the world. This would have been unmistakably clear, but at this point in our story, the deal, the deal is not done. God has initiated the agreement with a preamble. God has initiated the agreement with user agreements, but in the ancient world, these agreements always ended with both the king and his kingdom receiving a copy of this agreement. Where is that at? Where's the, the copy of this agreement? I'm glad you asked because next Sunday, God is literally going to lay down the law. So if you're out there and you're like, man, I'm, I'm for King Jesus. I want to be in the kingdom of Jesus. What does life in the kingdom look like? We're going to look at that next week. So let's pray.